Good evening, folks. I don't want to make a huge song and dance about this. I just think it's courtesy if you've, um, if it's gone under the radar, if you're tuning in, maybe even for the first time. I've always assumed that people might be. Uh, this program is not going to be continuing next year. I don't know what I'm going to do, uh, but that's, shall I say, that's a courtesy call. And... But we fire headlong to the finish line, which will be the weekend, December 15th. Give it up. Give it up. OK. Give it up. Give it up. We've recorded some real fun things with Grant Smithies over the years. Uh, we've been doing albums turning 40, and there's a lovely array on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage of all those. Uh, some real crackers and maybe a dud or two, and they've actually been fun uh, to rip apart. <laughs> um, we've got... Outside of that general theme, uh, we've done things like the best intros in rock music, uh, the shortest songs ever. There's one that just goes... <clears throat> it's brilliant. I think they just say, why? We'll explore these uh, these weeks leading up to Stumps. Uh, later on tonight, Spoken Word, part one. Spoken Word in rock music and, oh, you know, any, uh, any sort of music. I think you know what I mean. Linton Quasi Johnson would fit. Uh, John Cooper Clark would fit. And they feature Spoken Word in music with Grant Smithies and myself between 11 o'clock and 12 on, no, that's tomorrow night. Yeah, tomorrow night, because tonight we've got the best lyrics we could find. Utterly subjective, uh, but it didn't hold us back, Grant Smithies and myself. We just line up a few. Uh, this is part two. We played best lyrics part one. Lots of New Zealand stuff after 11 o'clock this evening. And speaking of that sort of thing, uh, read me a poem. It's been the... A feature that we've been running for a few weeks. Tim Finn, CK Stead, Sam Hunt, uh, Steve Braunius, Bill Doreen, and another literary slash music-y person, George Henderson. Uh, his band, The Puddle, just a tremendous outfit, and uh, he pays a lot of attention to poetry. He reads us a poem tomorrow evening at around the 10.30 mark, and tells us why it's good. He's picked W.H. Auden. Um, I'll just leave it at that, and he will be describing in full detail tomorrow evening at 10.30. These things have been real fun to put together. After the commercial break, James Crute. We have a look at the life and works of a couple of directors. Um, sad to hear their deaths. Uh, just this week. Some people say passed away. I think that might be my grievance tomorrow evening. All this passing away stuff, they died. Uh, Bernardo Bertolucci being the most famous. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live.
my favourite piece of music, but damn, it's still evocative for the sheltering sky. That's Ryuichi Sakamoto. And uh, the theme to the movie by Bernardo Bertolucci, a fine director, died this week. James Crute with a bit of a hats off salute amongst uh, some other cinematic news. Hi, James. G'day, Graham. How are you? Good, 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 good. Um, yeah. It's been one of those weeks, really, as well as Bernardo Bertolucci. We've also had uh, Nicholas Rogue and Ricky Jay, the magician slash actor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, not quite a 2016 affair where it started with <laughs> David Bowie and got worse. Well, yeah, but of course Nicholas Rogue uh, had a number of connections with Bowie. Most notably, he was the director of The Man Who Fell to Earth. Ah, oh, of course, right, yeah. It's funny. And, and in and in fact, he had a number of kind of pop star. He gave um, Mick Jagger his role in performance. Mm -hmm. You know, it was he just had those kind of links. But yeah, Bertolucci is probably the big one, really. Of course, uh, listeners will remember such films as The Last Tango in Paris, The Last Emperor, The Sheltering Sky, which you mentioned, Little Buddha, and Stealing Beauty, and The Dreamers. Whoa. Why haven't you included 1900 in there? Because that was when, when I watched <laughs> it that. It was massive. That's true. And, in fact, it's shown in two parts most of the time. If you want to see any of these movies, it's really hard to see them these days, but actually Māori TV are well known for putting, uh, particularly 1900, look out for it around Christmas. I think, I think it's been on the last couple of years around the New Year's. You're joking. It's like the great, <laughs> great escape in Britain. Yeah, precisely. Far out. Okay. Uh, now, yeah, nineteen hundred. Uh, sort of Italian language movie, mm. uh, um, and yeah, uh, that really struck me as as quite a thing. Um, he must have been pretty young when he did that, though. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, he always seemed to be old, didn't he? Yeah. He, I mean, he was born in forty-one, so he had a good innings. Got to what seventy-seven? That makes it. Um, but you know, even when he directed the Last Emperor which, of course, was the one that won the, the Academy Award, he would have been uh, only in his 40s, and he, he seemed older. He felt like that kind of generation who were making movies in the 50s and 60s, when, of course, he would have only been about 20 at the time. Yeah. Did we just get him mixed up with Federico Fellini? Well, I think that's quite possibly the case, yeah. especially in a number of people's eyes. I mean, I guess he was the the, shi the shining example of Italian cinema in the 80s and 90s, most notably with his Chinese epic, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, this. I guess it was kind of... He was the, the person who helped lift the the lid on the, you know, at that stage, I guess the communist regime was kind of this strange thing that nobody knew much about. And this was kind of this look at the, the days just as that, just prior to that. And it just had this kind of opulence about it and just this mm. amazing sort of, you know, it was part of that, that era of where you'd have these uh, world cinema global epics that were, I guess, embraced by American and British audiences. You know, it's the Merchant Ivory period in a way. Mm, yeah. Um, well, starting off with 1900, and, oh, well, not starting off with that, but that sort of film, then t developing into real blockbuster stuff, wasn't it? Was it, it feels like a change. 
Yeah, I think it probably was, and I guess that's the the situation with Hollywood come a courting, isn't it? Yeah. And and where you're getting your financing from. I mean, he had a champion and a guy called Jeremy Thomas, who's based out of England, who could get money for projects uh, and get it from around Europe. And yeah, he did kind of dabble a bit in the whole Hollywood star kind of thing, didn't he? I mean, if you look at Little Buddha, from memory, that was Keanu Reeves, wasn't it? Stealing Beauty was the the making of Liv Tyler. Um, the dream is later on uh, Eva Green. You know, the, of course, some people are, you know, in in this kind of prurient way, were a bit worried about some of those last kind of projects. There are a lot of people who think Stealing Beauty, you know, f- feels a bit icky now in terms of its creating an object of a desire who was so young, but. Mm. You know, it's just one of those things. I guess, you know, he was not tarred with the same brush as Polanski, but there's this kind of idea that some of his films were a little uncomfortable in Mm. terms of that side of things. But I think, and of course, (laughs) we haven't even talked about The Last Tango in Paris. No. And much debate over which country's butter was used in that infamous (laughs) scene with Martin Brando. I, I see there are some people who, after... Uh, his death this year. We're claiming it was New Zealand butter, but, you know, I'm not so sure. It might have been Dane Pack. You never know. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable watch, Last Tango, but what do you make of it as a movie? As a movie, I think it's just... It's like all of those movies about those about relationships like that and depicting the sexuality and I guess raw animosity and when you don't have that sort of fantasy layer or I guess what she'd throw in in Game of Thrones and cat people mm. I guess from almost well, a little bit later than Last Tango in Paris um, in fact quite a bit later um, you, you know you don't have that uh, kind of uh, you can't hide behind that. It's real, raw emotions. And I think some people find that very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. But, but of course, this movie has its problems because in recent years, people have then gone on to say, well, actually, that scene was a real rape. Um, and, you know, it's hard to defend that kind of thing. That You know, some of the things that went on on set. Uh, just interestingly, as an aside, there is a terrific, heads up, listeners, documentary coming to Soho at the end of December called Jane Fonda in five acts and she talks about that opening scene in Barbarella and in fact Barbarella as a whole and just how she was kind of coerced by her husband of the time Roger Vadim into doing some of those things apparently she was completely drunk when she did the opening titles of Barbarella oh really because that was the only way she could get through it and then apparently there was a fly between her and the lens so they had to reshoot it she was not a happy girl. Because of a fly. Well, yeah. well, well. Those <laughs> things happen, don't they? They do. Yeah, but that's okay. the last thing you want with a... Because that's quite a long sequence, uh, yeah. people might remember. Yeah. Okay, how much of Last Tango in Paris's reputation is because of its lascivious, oh my goodness, uh, we've got to ban this thing? Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot. Um, you know, and, I thought but also, also it's another of those kind of points in Brando's career where he was changing, wasn't he? Like, you know, he'd been this young, vigorous star and here he was slightly less young and vigorous, if you like. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it is... It is it, it's not the sort of thing that would get made today. I think, I think they tried to redo this sort of thing back in the 90s and use Michael Douglas a lot. Oh, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> with, with terrible jumpers, but, yeah, I think... 
I think most of it now. But but let's be honest, most of the kind of films that Bertolucci made nowadays they'd be on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's just the way of the world. Those kind of stories now Hollywood won't make. No. It, it's up to another part of Hollywood or or Netflix or HBO. Yeah, that's that's exactly true. Which have actually they've done that job for year for bloody decades now. Yeah, 15, 20 years, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I just want to talk a little bit about sheltering sky because yeah. that that has um a, an upsetting, disturbing side to it. Um, it. It wouldn't be called My Moroccan Holiday. What <laughs> it's just, did you get this sort of menacing side to it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he one of the great things he was able to do, and, and it's not just him, but I guess the army of people, you know, art directors, um, yeah, production people and costuming well, and cinematography, obviously, in the case you're talking about, was create that sense of space and place. And, and yeah, really the backdrops were a character in most of his films. Mm. And I think, I think that's definitely reflective in Sheltering Sky. Yeah. I just find it uh, not not a travel brochure, put it that well, way. Well, and in fact, if you want to talk about that, let's talk about Nicholas Rogue, of course, the other great director who died yep. uh, this week. He did Walkabout uh-huh. in Australia, which, of course, you know, was one of the first films to really present uh, Australia's backer beyond as a very menacing kind of place. Right, which it is. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, let's not forget he did Don't Look Now, which turned Venice into a place of horror. Oh, God, really? Oh, and that was, uh, of course, a guy that looks like John Dippick. God, he's gone completely out of my head. (laughs) Have you ever seen Donald Sutherland and John Dippick in the same room? Yeah, yeah, Donald Sutherland. And a peculiar movie, that thing, wasn't it? It was. I mean, it was... There's something lacking in it, though. It should be a better movie than it is. Yeah, it's almost like he made one of those Dario Argento movies without being Italian. And I guess that's it was kind of translating that Italian giallo or whatever they call it into, you know, more mainstream narrative. And, and you know, it came out around the same time as all those things like The Exorcist and The Omen. And, yeah. and, 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 and it, did, it does feel... And, of course, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers sequel as well. Oh, the remake as well. And, it, yeah, it does, it does feel kind of odd. But there's something compelling about it at the same time. Yeah. Um, one of the other movies that, of course, Nicholas Rogue made, which is beloved by a generation, at least, is his version of Roald Dahl's The Witches with Angelica Houston as the Grand Witch. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, but I, and I must just mention Ricky Jay. Now, uh, people might not remember the name so much, but he, he was basically a magician. He was a favourite of David Mamet, the uh, playwright, in a number of things, who even uh, sort of bang, backed his uh, stage shows and stuff. But he's been in things like The Prestige. Uh, he was in Magnolia. Um, Boogie Nights he had a role in as well. He just one of those character actors. If, if you see his face, you'll definitely remember him. Okay. James Crute, thank you very much. A salute to Nicholas Rogue and, of course, Bernardo Bertolucci, who died at 77 just this week. And we'll go out with a little bit of uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto and the theme to Sheltering Sky. It has a bit of menace to it. Not music, though.
the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to... Here he is, Max Cryer. That's me. Nose in the books, as <laughs> usual this week, and yes. it's been a busy inbox, hasn't That's it, Max? That's right, it has. Um, first of all, our word of the week is weather. W-E-A-T-H-E-R. There's been a lot of it about. There has been. Well, the English You word. should go outside. It's amazing. There's just weather everywhere. Yes, I know. It's different every five minutes. Yeah. Well, the English word weather is what we can call inclusive nomenclature because the word is like an umbrella under which there occur wildly different kinds of events which all have different words for themselves. There's stormy, wintry, snowy, sunny, spring, frosty, summer, rainy, foggy, dull, bright, windy, hailing, scorching, even unpredictable and changeable. That sounds like a photographer assembling a class for a school photograph. Telling them where to stand. No. Snowy? <laughs> All right. In English, the overall word used to be Veda, of Germanic origin, as in Veta, with a D in English. But it's also related to the Dutch wear and slightly affected by the word wind, curiously enough. But whatever you think or care about the origin of the word, whether it has one universal factor of interest, what will the weather be on the day we have something planned? Mm. Even if we don't know exactly which of those many words the word comes from, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's amazing how damn good they are at predicting it, though. Yes, it is extraordinary. Oh, it used to be a running joke. But it's gone the way of the Irish joke now, hasn't it? Oh, well, the weather, they never know what's going on. I am astounded at how accurate they if can be. If anyone says that, let me point them towards metservice.com. Yeah, a MetView. MetView is my Met favourite. That's a... M-E-T-V-U-W. I found them the most accurate of all. Comes out of Victoria University. For a sort of day ahead? They have boldly gone where no weather <laughs> where forecast Where no Wellingtonian has gone before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ten. Ten days. It gets a little Woody. blurry and frayed at day ten, but for the seven-day forecast, I've just found it utterly um, astoundingly accurate. Well, you'll, you'll hear a weather forecast say, oh, and there'll be some uh, brief showers late this afternoon. And, you know, there'll be some brief showers later that afternoon. <laughs> How the hell do they figure it out? This <laughs> the, takes the most enormous computing grunt you could imagine. And a lot of expertise. Yeah, real smarts. You know, rubbish in, rubbish out. Well, I'd find metservice.com is pretty much the same. Mm, yeah. You could rely on it. Yeah, it yeah. is amazing. All right, Max, now somebody's asked about a doppelganger and a double cross. Is there a connection, the listener asked? Well, <laughs> there is a connection um, because both expressions rely on the word double, but they do have entirely different meanings. The, the connection is extremely slim. A doppelganger doesn't really exist. It exists in legends rather than real life. It's a German word. It literally means double-goer, and it refers to describe a ghostly version of a real person, a ghostly duplicate, a spirit person who looks exactly like you and goes where you go. So if one exists, it is a double-goer, a double-ganger. Double-cross is a bit closer to home. It has two distinct meanings. 
In old architecture, would you believe a double cross meant exactly that, a doubling of the shape of the cross, as found in the buildings of some cathedral. But the other meaning arose in the 1700s, and it originated in the old use of the word cross, meaning a transaction which was not honest and fair. Very often used in old-time sporting descriptions where a prearranged collusion took place, what we would now call match-fixing. Now, within that context, the word double had long been used to mean make evasive turns or shifts and act deceitfully. The imagery was of someone doubling back over a previous route, and that gave rise to the term double-dealing, which has been in use since the 1500s. That refers to someone saying one thing and doing another. There's also the term double-agent, someone who appears to be loyal to one organisation, but at the same time is also available to a rival agency. And that gives rise to double-cross, which is exactly the opposite of fair and square. A good example of the use of double-cross is a boxer receives money to deliberately lose but in the event goes in and beats the other man. Oh, right, So right. he gets the payment for agreeing to lose and then gets the winning money for having beaten him. So that is a double cross. So although double only means basically two or twice, in context it could indicate deception or tre treachery perpetrated on someone or someone's who didn't expect it, but it isn't really related to double ganger. Right, right. That's not like double agents. One group thinks they've yes. got a spy yes. working for them. And but it's the worst possible scenario because he's actually working for the other one a lot. Well, they can even shuttle from one to the other, like transfer information from one agency to another and cause mm. immeasurable problems. Mm. Yeah. No union. I mean, you know, if they can... <laughs> I've never heard of the <laughs> <Okay>. union. <laughs> if they can do their own independent contracts. OK. Uh, if you want to ask Max anything along these lines, words, their origin and meaning, uh, you can... Best, best ways on the Facebook page or the email form, or you can write to P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland, or just 3 Flower Street, Simon Street. We'll, um, New North Road will get us, I think. Yeah. Now, did, why did somebody ask if there was a connection between doppelganger and double cross? What was the connection there? That's what they asked. Is there a connection? I wonder because why. Because doppelganger means double. I know that's what they asked, but I wonder why they asked. Well, I it. don't know why. I just answered the question. Yeah, okay. The short answer is no, there is no connection except they're both to do with I, double. I, I find it a fascinating question why they would. The but next, anyway, they, the next they, one is good. You like okay. the next one. I don't know. They've all been good so mm -hmm. far. Um, whippersnapper. That's a cracking little thing, isn't it? Where does that come from? It's fascinating. Um, it's not heard often nowadays. It's undergone something of a change since it first came into use, which was in the 1600s. It was a term used in city and urban places to describe what we would call louts, because unemployed city layabout louts in those days used to hang around the streets snapping whips. They literally had a whip, and to sort of pass the time, they would snap it. Really? Yes. Whip snappers was one of the terms used to describe them. And in the following century, young louts could still be found doing the same thing with the slightly evolved term snipper snappers, who sometimes were errand boy types or lowly servants standing around snapping whips to pass the time while they were waiting for their master. Christopher Marlowe mentions it, uh, Snipper Snapper, in the 1604 edition of The Tragical History of Dr Faustus. 
His line says, I'll seek out my doctor. Oh, yonder is his snipper-snapper. You, where's your master? Really? The servant is standing out in the street, passing the time by going crack, crack with his whip. When was Christopher Marlowe? 1604. 1604, same time as oh, the end of Shakespeare. So gradually, whip-snapper and snipper-snapper began to merge into whipper-snapper. Young men who literally spent time snapping whips because they had nothing else to do. But over time, two slow but quite important changes took place. The application of the term whipper-snapper started to move down in age and gradually smoothed completely away from the perception of whips, but it retained a faint suggestion of liveliness. So while the term whippersnapper could occasionally be heard as a put-down about someone who is young but cheeky, mm. it's more usually referring to a boy just because he's still young and not fully grown, but not with any connotation of his being a lout. No. Yeah. Ah, that young little whippersnapper. Energetic, yeah. perhaps. Yes. It's typical all, it's youthful almost, energy. It's almost a compliment. It's yeah. Not quite, but if a friend or relative of yours has a... A child, an active child, and they're five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and it's not lazing around, but it's actually quite bright. Calling it a whippersnapper would be not an insult at all, it would be quite a compliment. I find it quite intriguing that they didn't have anything else other than a whip to play with. How, how can you say that when you know they didn't have cell phones or... or false equivalents. <laughs> this is, um, there were other things, there were, there were tops, there were, you know, they might have... Noughts and yes, crosses. but even knucklebones need somebody else to play with, and they might have been sort of standing around by themselves. Um, I, I only do the research. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll take a break, and when we return, uh, we'll have a look at a dead heat, as in a tie. And what is a skerrick, tantamount, and if we have time, I think we shall, dyke, as in lesbians, why? Oh, that's a very, very good question. Good morning, Amsterdam. <laughs> This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Max, Max, Maxity Max, answering your questions on words. If that was uh, going to be a limic, limerick, the last line might end with turds. Okay. <laughs> Dead. Don't, don't take up poetry, Graham. It's not your strong den. It was off the top of my head. I don't think I'm doing too badly. Um, dead heat, somebody asked this week. It came to Max's inbox. I passed it on from Facebook. That's how you ask. Or an email. Dead heat, as in a tie. Yes, a situation we also call a tie. Anything from an election to an athletic race, when two competitors cross the line exactly together, or two politicians get exactly the same number of votes. Well, it dates back to the 1600s, and it came from horse racing. As used um, in that expression, dead had the meaning of absolute, total, thorough and complete. Not necessarily the finality of actual death, but just dead, meaning there was no way out. And the same finite image can be heard in dead broke, dead line, dead centre, dead ringer, dead on. And heat here means a single course or division of a race. Sometimes a race or other contest in which the competitors attempt to qualify for entry in the final race or the contest. Now, that usage of heat dates back to the 1300s, when one of the meanings of heat was, quote, a single intense effort or bout of action. 
Now, by the 1500s, heat had also come to mean a run given to a racehorse by way of exercise, preparing for a race. By the 1600s, heat had become to mean a single run of a race, which may have been heading for the winners thereof that race, to compete later against those who had run in other heats. Why did it call it? A, why, why did they grab heat for this word? Do it's we not. Know? It's simply not known. Oh, okay. um, somebody knew in the 1300s, but I wasn't able to ask that person. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the horse gets hot. Maybe. The- well, they probably oh, it's not all, that ridiculous, is it? No, but they all would have got hot, wouldn't they? Not just one or two. So when the series um, of these short races have all been run, or these sort of leading races, there could only be one semi-final and final. And if two people or horses finished at exactly the same moment, it became common to say it was a dead heat. Right. Not just an ordinary heat, but a dead heat. Doesn't happen often. That they're exact. Mm that they can't split them with the photo finish. With the noses. Mm. It's usually the nose, isn't it? Usually the front part of a horse, yeah. Mm. Maybe, does the jockey count if he's been tossed from the horse and goes over the... <laughs> I top? can't They should that, do that if it's close, shouldn't they? For goodness sake, take on the bravery of the field, man. I think I'll stick to the words, Graham. You can predict what might happen if the jockey falls over the line. (laughs) Simply don't know. Must have happened in all the history of horse racing. Okay. um, Now, a skerrick, somebody asks. A skerrick. To me, that means a a tiny little bit of something. A a small amount, yes. Mm. Why is it called skerrick? Now, it's one of these sad answers I have to face now and then. I dislike having to do it, but there's no option. The answer is there was absolutely no knowledge at all anywhere from anyone about how or why the word skerrick came from. It used to mean halfpenny, but that's not the origin. That's just that a halfpenny was a coin of small value, as is everything else which is called a skerrick. So we simply don't... I'm not able to tell the listener because I don't know where it came from, and the Oxford Dictionary says the same thing. They don't know where it came from. Skerrick. You can make something up, Grab. You often do. It sounds like uh, it sounds like a surname, doesn't it? It sort of sounds right for something sport. I think we've been using it on yeah. and off for so long. It sort of fits. You know, there was a skerrick of oil left, or a skerrick left in the fridge, or something. Sounds just so right. Maybe well, there's a, maybe there's a Derek skerrick well, out there. Well, when it's been used since when did I say several hundred several hundred years, mm. it sort of settles in. Mm. Here's a strange word. We use it and understand it frequently-ish. Uh, but it does, when you think about it, seem weird. Tantamount. Yes, it's not actually all that difficult. Um, it means equivalent to that something is virtually the same as something else. Uh, that which is described as A is actually a reworded equivalent of B. The word has been in English since the mid-1600s, and it means to be equivalent to. It comes from Anglo-French, tant amunta, meaning it amounts to as much. Um, In this sentence, listen to this one, the rather feeble explanation he gave to the government was tantamount to admitting treason. Yeah. That's exactly a, a perfect use of it, because... What the bloke said, he wasn't saying, I have committed treason, but the words added up to meaning that. Right. I have the perception that it's kind of like almost but not quite tantamount. Almost but not quite? Yeah. 
Almost, but not quite treason, if he was tantamount to treason. It can be perceived as, though. I think that's what what is meant by that. What he said could really be the uh, focus of an entire court case because someone will say, oh, he didn't mean that, he meant A or B. There's uh, a word used in the judicial system that I think's changed its meaning um, without anybody putting a sign on it saying it has. Um, Alleged. Alleged. Alleged means no one knows. It's not been proved. We can't say. But now it means probably did it. Really? I reckon the perception is there. Oh, these changes happen all the time. Have you noticed that we never have a power breakdown anymore? We have an outage. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, breakdown is... Because breakdown sounds like somebody did something wrong or Mm. there was an accident. But outage means God did it. Yeah. I suppose so. There was a, a bank in the city of London that degrew one it, year. It did what? Degrew. It degrew. Yeah. It said so. Yeah, it said so. It got smaller. It degrew. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't stop using the word "grow" because they didn't want to disappoint people, so they put "d" in front of it. I think we have to accept, Graham, that we live at a time of history which, exactly like every other time of history, has words changing as we go along. Oh, of course. All right. Uh, Dyke, as in lesbians. Well, that's been recognised. The use of that had been recognised the the first time in dictionaries in 1942, but it had been in use long before that. Why the word dyke was ever attached to lesbianism, nobody is sure. Ten people will confidently give you ten different answers, but none of them will have what I call verifiable backup. Scholars have found that dyke was a used description, re-women for women, in the area known as Harlem in New York. And it was being said there as early as 1920. But one of the main strange things about its more general use was that from the mid-1800s, dyke was actually a slang term in America for a well-dressed man. If someone was particularly smart, you know, with their tie had been ironed and their shirt was clean, and he was referred to as a dyke. And that look expression... Look at that dyke sauntering up the road. Exactly, yeah. Look at that dyke bloke sauntering oh, up the road. So the expression at a later point, diked out, um, or he was diked out, the one you spoke about, he was mm. diked out on the street there, he was in his best clothes. Now, that term may have arisen from the earlier phrase, decked out, yeah. as a vague possibility. But although the meaning is universally recognised between lesbians and the word dyke, but in terms which can be researched and verified, there is no reliable authoritative connection. There is one rather colourful possibility... With no backup, but I must have, in the course of our program, I must tell everything that I can discover. And there is a, a thought about a very famous pro feminist queen called Boadicea. Oh. But there is not one shred of evidence that, of what her preferences were. How does Dyke attach to her? Because of what I said, that she was a, a pro-feminist and strong Celtic queen. Yeah, but the, how did the word dyke attach? Well, uh, dyke is a word which nowadays signas, signifies a personal sexual preference. Yeah. And no one has any evidence of queen. So is it bodykeia? Well, that, yes, because that, uh, although her personality was apparently open to some question, but the name had this dyke a bit at the end. Mm. 
She but there's a, no she proof. Had a rough life, poor the, old Boudicca. There's no truth, no proof, no proof. This is just no. someone putting desperately putting all forward a frail possibility. No. She was friends with the Romans. They, then they she was not it, friends it, with very many people. Well, all of the Iceni. She was the leader of the Iceni. Her two daughters were raped yes. by the Roman guards, yes, that, that's and upsetting. then she went on a rampage and um, burnt London to the ground. Yes, she did. I've actually got a coin. A what? A, a coin of hers? I've got a no. I've got a coin of Claudius. Oh. Which is burnt from the Roman burning. Really? Of, from Boudicca. That she, the, the burning that she instigated? Oh. Almost certainly. Well. Unless, unless it was one random fire. Well, that's more valuable. At the same time. That's more valuable than putting her name forward as the origin of Dyke. Okay. Because your, your coin is definite, but the origin of the name isn't. I've always thought Dyke <laughs> as. Um, kind of like more towards the butch end of the spectrum. You? Well, I, I just don't have an opinion because oh, okay. I'm answering the question, why is the word used at all and where does it come from? Yeah. I'm just asking something else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was beside myself. It sounds preposterous. How on earth would this come about as even a thing that we understood? As well, the listener... Meaning being perplexed. The listener heard people say it when they were either very happy or very sad, mm. beside themselves with grief, or so happy she was beside herself. And he remarks that it sounds like an uncontrollable spirit leaping out of one bodily form, which isn't far off the truth. Um, there's a way of thinking which in psychiatric terms is called dissociation, the separation of a group of mental processes or ideas from the rest of the personality so that they can lead an almost independent existence. There's occasional extreme manifestations of this, um, a, con a condition which does exist called multiple personalities. But a much milder form of this condition exists in many sane people. For example, writers often say that once they start writing a story, the characters develop inside their heads and the characters more or less take over the development of the plot. Hmm. I've heard writers tell you that when they're halfway through writing a book, they can't necessarily tell you how the story is going to end. Now, one colourful example that I have experience of is if you're talking to Barry Humphreys, he never ever says anything about Dame Edna as I. It's always she. She's a separate, dissociated person from him. And they're sort of two different people. And most actors do the same. They'll speak about the character they're playing as a separate person. So, to get back to the original question, the English language has many expressions which imply dissociation. I don't know what got into me. Something came over me. Mm. I asked myself, what am I doing here? I went to visit Mary, but she just wasn't herself today. And if a person receives a compliment on their health or appearance, they might say, I take care of myself. Or they get up and dance on a table and say, that was quite out of character for me. And sometimes I was beside myself. You hear that sort of thing all the time. Mm. It's not uncommon. So those expressions go along with the concept of self as a separate thing from, yet contained in, you. The self belongs to you. It's part of you. And yet it's something that can have a relationship linked but be separate from your own usual consciousness. So in grief or happiness, you can validly say, I was beside myself. Mm. And English isn't the only language which does this. Latin has the term alter ego, the other self. German has doppelganger, which we spoke of earlier. So 
that isn't quite the same, but it furthers the concept that one person can, in a way, be two people. It all goes to show that that old joke, me, myself and I, mm. isn't actually a joke. Right. Now, December the 1st, mm. 155 years ago today, ask me what happened, Graham, you'll be thrilled. The first, what happened, Max? The first train ride in New Zealand occurred. It wasn't a long journey. It was from Christchurch to Ferrymead, but excitement was... Where's Ferrymead? Eight, eight kilometres away. OK. It was... Uh, the excitement was intense. Those eight kilometres had joyously anticipated and the start of something bigger which had been greatly anticipated. So, on today's date, in 1863, along the train track, there was a colourful display of flags, coloured drapery, and lines of ladies in crinolines, bonnets and shawls to see this event, which pressed the idea of train travel available virtually throughout the whole of New Zealand, which did happen. Did it have a practical use, this train track, or was it simply a gimmick, a thing like, oh my goodness, it was, Look at the Industrial Revolution on it rails. It was a small part of what became rail routes throughout the whole country. Right. OK. Uh, Grant Smithies and myself, after 11 o'clock, speaking of words sort of things, um, we're doing part two of great lyrics in rock and pop music, and more besides, actually. Um, you got any favourites, Max? Uh, yes. But Putting I, you on the spot, Riley. Yes, rather, I, I'd have to think about it. Yeah, so. think about it. Okay. It depends yeah. also what you mean by pop music. Oh, I don't really care any <laughs> any music, except for that opera stuff. They sing funny, Max. Do they? Yeah. Oh, I've never heard that. Can't understand a word they say. It's as if it's in German or Italian or something. Well, yes, I believe sometimes it is. No. Well, <laughs> yes. Okay. Except perhaps Handel's Messiah. Oh, and that's coming I up. know how the chorus goes in that. Yes. Well, the chorus is in Hebrew. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. Good one. I'll leave you with uh, one of my favourite lyricists, because I can, and why not? A gorgeous thing called Wolfpack by the former Pink Floyd leader. Um, pardon me, Max. Um, the p former Pink Floyd leader, Sid Barrett. Sid Barrett. Uh, oh, they all say he just went completely mad, but this is after the Pink Floyd abandonment, and I rate it as better than anything they've been doing at the time. Wolfpack. Have a look at it online. I think the lyrics are just marvellous.